If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about the pit of technology despair that must be avoided or overcome to gain access to the higher levels of customer equity acceleration. Remember, if you're not familiar with the maturity curve, you can find a summary of it in episode number two and more detail on each stage in the following episodes four, five, and six. So today, to help me discuss a bit about what the pit of technology despair is and why you should care, I've invited a very special guest and friend, Bob Page. Hey, Alison. (laughs) Hi, Bob. Now, Bob, I think you are a bit of a Silicon Valley legend because you actually founded Accrue Software back in 1996, which was one of the very first analytics companies, and you took it public. So that was just fantastic. Maybe you could start by telling us a little bit more about where that experience led you. Uh, madness. No, actually, so, <laughs> you know, we used to talk at a crew about the fact that we were driving this train and we were going to be getting to the station and we hoped that there would be people waiting for us when we got there. We were just making stuff up because no one really understood what enterprise class web analytics could be. But be that as it may, as a vendor, what it showed me was we were just barely scratching the surface of what we could be doing with data in the marketing context. And I took some time off after a crew to think about what was next. And I felt like one of the things that I really needed to understand was how enterprises use data at scale. And so I went to work for Yahoo. And initially, my charter was to go build their experimentation platform. And one thing led to another, and I I ended up um, taking on all the analyst tools and then all of the BI systems. And so I owned quite a bit of the sort of internal analytics and reporting within Yahoo for close to five years. Well, that Uh, was enterprise at scale. Good Lord, that's a lot. It was a lot of data, and it was an interesting data set in that the business model primarily was making people go away, right? Uh, Yahoo was an <laughs> ad-driven site. And so the job was to create the inventory for the ads. And then you wanted to see how effective the ads were. But all we had was quick data on the ads. So we knew that people saw them and left, but we didn't necessarily know what they did once they were on the other side. So trying to connect the whole customer experience was difficult. But fast forward, I got an opportunity to go run data and analytics for eBay. And one of the things that was quite attractive there was not only did they have all the click data, et cetera, because customers were coming to their site, or at least so I thought, I'll get back to that in a second. But they also had all the purchase data since it was an e-commerce site and even the support data. So because I could see the whole customer life cycle, I thought this is going to be great. And so I spent a fair amount of time at eBay. And then after that, decided, you know, I think what would be useful would be 
to jump back into the vendor side of things. So by then, Hadoop became a thing and maybe not quite enterprise class yet, but I wanted to see if I could help in that regard. So I went to go run the product organization at Hortonworks as a commercial Hadoop vendor and spent a couple of years doing that. So it's been kind of a straight line, but kind of a curvy line at the same time, trying to go from my roots. 20 years ago, building systems for large-scale data analysis to doing the same thing at Hortonworks. And then I should just point out the last few years, I've been mostly on the consulting side, trying to look at what organizations are doing. You know, I don't know that everybody would have such a logical flow to their career. That's really cool. I really like the way you talked about it from the analytics start to the way Yahoo, you got part of the information to eBay, where you can see both sides of the information. And then because you're dealing with such scale, then you've got systems like Hortonworks and always thinking about what's on the cutting edge. That's a very entrepreneurial of you. Very cool. So you were privileged to work with some of the largest data sets out there at the time, but not every company is used to processing you know, zettabytes, exabytes, you know, massive quantities of data. But I think that most people would agree that there's way too much data out there. So why should people with smaller data take a little time to learn from the big guys? Well, you mentioned big guys, and that leads me to what's commonly called big data. And so let me, I guess, define that. Most people think about big data, especially in the context of large companies like a, a Yahoo and eBay, as huge volume. And while that's true that those companies did have huge volume, if you think about big data as if you sort of visualize it as a cube uh, or you know a 3D space, volume is just one axis. You also have velocity, right, or, or how fast that data is coming in, and also variety. You just have one type of data. Your needs are very different than if you have dozens or hundreds of different kinds of data, different systems that you need to integrate to make sense out of. And that doesn't mean just structured data either. It could be image data, video data, it could be text from you know, social media, it could be anything. I'm uh, so but, glad you mentioned that because I think people, when they hear data, they automatically think text and yet video and images and the whole additional variety is really quite the way things are now. Right. And my claim is that everyone can plot all three of those. The bigger you are as a company, it's probably the case that the further out you are on each of these axes. But what, and, when you're, sorry, what do you mean by further out? Do you mean like it, it's you have more volume, more velocity, and more variety? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I think so. When you're one of the big companies, you have all those things in abundance. And so trying to marshal all that and get it under control and making it useful to the business is something that takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. And it takes a lot of engineers, IT staff, support teams, et cetera. And that's not something that a lot of you know, medium and small companies can do or can deal with. The thing is that just like we've done with things like when I did a crew and we didn't really know how to answer the question, so we were just making stuff up, the big boys, the big companies, the big girls, when they're out on the bleeding edge, when you're sort of taking the arrows, you're just making stuff up. You're not really sure if it's what you're doing is going to lead to nirvana, but you're, you're trying a whole lot of different things. And oftentimes when it works, you're excited, obviously, but you also want to share that. And in the old days, it was like, well, you know, this is a competitive advantage. Why would I want to share this? But the reality is if you sort of think about what your crown jewels are, a lot of times it's A, your product offering, and B, your data your understanding of the customer and how to mm -hmm. service them. It's not the processing infrastructure. 
because the mm-hmm. processing infrastructure means nothing without the data and without the great products and service that you provide. So a lot of companies, when they've solved these really hairy problems, have said, why don't we take some of this, package it up, and make it available as open source that others can take advantage of. But you know, when you talk about open source, what I first heard was customer data that is known by a company should be open sourced so that everyone can share and benefit from it. And obviously, there's ethics and privacy issues there. Is that what you meant? Absolutely not. No, 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 no. The data about the customer that they've provided you or that you've communicated or that your systems have been able to deduce or whatever, those are the things that are important to you, not the systems that house that and process that data. Got Does that make sense? Thanks for clarifying that. Okay, so given that, what would be some examples? Well, I guess the one that comes to mind first is at Yahoo. We didn't have any commercial systems that we could buy that would allow us to handle our data volume. Never mind variety and, and velocity. Volume was the problem for us. And so we had to handle these technologies, including storage and query and, and everything else. We didn't even have SQL. We would invent SQL-like processing engines. Wow. But they were fragile. They were temperamental. They were expensive. And they were fairly slow. And so the business often couldn't see data until the next day, just mm-hmm. because of a lot of the processing resources that it required. But in the meantime, the search team was trying to figure out, how do we index the web? And they came up with a technology that ends up calling Hadoop. <laughs> and, Imagine that. <laughs> and, yeah. And I mean, Hadoop didn't solve our need in the data team initially, but it cracked a huge problem. And that is, how do we do distributed data processing? Concurrency and parallelization are some of the hardest problems in computer science. And Hadoop figured out how to do that at scale. So, so you know, when you uh, talk about sorry, distributed data processing, why is that important? You know, you've got a lot of information. Why is it important to distribute it? What I mean by distributed, I don't mean distributed across the world or across departments. I mean distributed across processing engines because the engines only go so fast. The, an individual machine, for example, will only go so fast. But think about it like a freeway. If you have a one-lane freeway, you can continue to make changes to that one lane to make it from a, say, a, a dirt road where you can only go about 10, 20 miles an hour to this super slick Autobahn type thing where you could be going you know, 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. But there's a top end to that. At some point, you get diminishing returns, and you're just not going to be able to build a, a, a single lane that's going to be able to let you go 400, 500 miles an hour. It's like Page's law for data processing instead of Moore's law for chips. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's kind of the same. I mean, yes, you could say, well, a car is not the right thing. Instead, you should be building a jet engine, and you should be building airports. Yes, yes, yes. Right? And there's rockets and everything else. But let's just stick with the analogy here because everyone's got cars. And it's like everyone's got, you know, SQL, for example, or whatever. So if I can build this super fast one-lane Audubon, but I have too many cars that can fit, what should I do? Well, let's build two lanes, or let's build 20 lanes. Let's build Mm -hmm. 1,000 lanes. Now, there's cost involved in that. And once you start getting to dozens and two dozen and, you know, 50, 100 lanes, all running in parallel, 
Well, now you've got some issues that you have to deal with that you didn't have to deal with in a single lane freeway. But if everyone's going the same way, at the same speed, for the same amount of time, you could fit a whole lot of cars on that freeway. So when I say distributed data processing, what I mean is spreading the load of the huge amount of data across multiple machines, hundreds of machines, thousands of machines, mm. to do sort of simultaneously, as opposed to having one machine try to take on the entire load and become a bottleneck. That makes sense? That makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So Hadoop that Yahoo developed and the data team ended up sort of rebasing a lot of their technology stack on really kind of forms the basis for a lot of enterprise data lakes today. The backbone. But let me talk about another application of data okay. and analytics. We often think about the technology that supports data and analytics as one that supports decision making. And when we talk about making decisions, we generally talk about analysts making recommendations that are presented in some kind of report form or recommendation form to some decision maker, could be the business or an executive or whatever, then says, okay, go flip the switch or go make this change or whatever. But what if that was a closed loop and rather than using just reports and analysis, what if you could take relevant insights that have been computed and feed that back into your operational machinery, mm. like a recommendation engine? So many years ago at eBay, smarter folks than I observed that one of the hardest problems that we had was getting the data to where it needed to be you know, at the right time. So yeah, we had customer profiles and, and all that good stuff. But when you completed a purchase and you checked out, we would feed you some suggestions about what you might like to consider buying next. The problem was our data wasn't fast enough to let the recommendation engine know, don't recommend the thing you just bought. So, oh, <laughs> yeah. So that was a little weird. So we invested in some custom and off-the-shelf technologies to stream the data to the right engines as it was being computed. And now today, years later, organizations can choose from a whole bunch of different open source technologies that allow for this streaming analytics, essentially live insights that feed other systems. So again, you know, nice. real-time dashboards or whatever. But that's not exactly machine learning. It's machines more or less educating machines like parts of a car working together or parts of an engine working together. Yeah, very, very simple communication of insights or profiles or whatever from one component of your machinery to another. Yeah, we're not talking about any artificial intelligence or machine learning or any of that stuff. This is very simple. I just purchased this widget. And so put that in my profile so that when you recommend to me that I might want to consider purchasing things, you don't recommend the same widgets that I just bought. Mm -hmm. Very, 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 very simple, simple stuff. So let me give you one more, just if we have time. Yeah. We've got all these, all these cool systems. Now we have this distributed data management and processing, and now we've got streaming and real-time analytics. And now more and more people are looking at the cloud and do we do things in the cloud or on-premises or some kind of hybrid? Now, the big guys who are doing all this stuff are like, hmm, how do we manage all this stuff as kind of one thing instead of all these new fun tools that are kind of lightly connected or becoming more business critical. Now we're talking about operational excellence. We've got security issues and how they you know, operate across different systems. Obviously, and we're talking about governance and management technologies. And so a lot of these things are let say the big boys have kind of taken the arrows now and are saying, how do we solve these problems? And then contributing what they're coming back with back into the open source world. And as other companies are adopting them, they're kind of shaving off some of the rough edges. I know that when we were building stuff at eBay, for example, we had a very 
top quality, great, big operations team that could handle some of the weirdness. And a lot of times our developers would be on the front lines. So when something broke, oh yeah, you wrote the code, we can fix that. Mm-hmm. But once it goes out into the world, and it's not code that you wrote, you don't have the development staff or the IT staff to, you know, of say a Silicon Valley internet company, you don't want to take on more headache. So a lot of what's been driving development lately in the open source world is how do we, as I said, shave off some of these rough edges so that you don't need an enormous IT staff to be able mm-hmm. to bring these technologies in-house and manage them. You know, that brings up a really good point, because when you say IT staff, I think overhead, I think people, I think cost, and I think one of my fundamental premises, especially in the foundational stages of the maturity curve, is that there's no or very little ROI on the foundation, on on technology platforms. Do you think there's any ROI impact on doing big data well, other than just avoiding falling into the pit of technology despair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's absolutely ROI impact. How? Well, there's, I knew you were going to ask me that. You know, whether there's, <laughs> some of it you can directly measure and others, it's probably not so direct. I'll give you examples of both. Okay. Well, well, okay, let's go back to eBay. There's just, I guess I call it, you know, customer happiness, right? If you're not getting a recommendation for something you just bought, then well, you don't know that you're happy, but you know you would be <laughs> a little bit turned off if you were getting recommendations for things that you just bought, right, on the checkout screen. Okay. If you didn't so, do it well, then you would, if you you would revert well, customer happiness. Yeah. And so that's kind of table stakes. Now, mm-hmm. something if you didn't do, there would be a negative impact, I guess. Let me give you a more, more subtle one. You're trying to check out and something isn't working. Like maybe you're trying to type in, you know, your, your country and there's something wrong. It's just not working. So you call the call center and you say, I've got this issue and here's what the issue is and here's how I replicate it, whatever. And the agent says, hmm, I don't see that here. I I can't replicate that here. But then you find out later after this happens dozens or hundreds of times, and let's just say this is hypothetical. We won't say that any company that I've ever been associated (laughs) with ever had this problem. You realize that the customer was in an A-B test and the agent had no way to know that even if the test was running, so couldn't put themselves in the same test and so couldn't address the problem. Confounding um, factors. Yeah, yeah, because you know what? Your testing system and your support system weren't connected. So, you know, you don't have your sort of complete customer knowledge. So you, you cannot make decisions quickly because your technology is not connected. Okay. Now, should the two systems themselves be connected because then you have peer-to-peer issues blah 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 i won't get into that but this is the point of if you're going down this path of building out this landing place for all your customer data think about using it as a way to connect all your systems without having to connect your systems themselves right you're connecting them through the data Uh, give me an example when i went to ebay they were not using their clickstream data they were throwing it away it's kind of hard to believe well, it is, isn't it? Now, yeah. now to be fair, they went through it all the way. They were, you know, keeping a few months, and they were keeping like a two percent sample for like a year or something like that. 
but they didn't have everything. And it was simply an ROI calculation. They could tell you COV for customers that had purchased something or had sold something. But what about visitors that actually tried to buy or doing searching and then ended up not trying to bid or buy something? Well, it didn't end up in a purchase, so they didn't capture it. But what happened was Hadoop had become something that was worth putting in place and was sufficiently hardened that we were able to get it done. And at a cost of less than 10% of our existing analytics systems. So we built Clickstream data systems and they had enough capacity that we were able to take the transactions that we had and take the transactions and put those into Hadoop as well. And so we were building this large data set that combined transactional data and the behavioral data and, you know, paving the way for a lot of other kinds of data uh, that would be added as well. But I'll give you a couple of things that came out of this almost right away. One is in the past, you'd go to eBay and you'd type in a search term that you maybe you wanted something to buy. And you would see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of listings. And you'd be like, hmm, I don't even know which one of these I should be paying attention to. And then you realize that uh, they're all from the same seller. And you go, hmm. Well, just polluting my view into what's available. And so many people call it listing spam. So the team responsible for looking at a lot of the stuff on the buyer behavior side determined that they would probably be a pretty significant uplift if we stopped the practice of listing spam because the whole marketplace would benefit. Sellers would benefit because they'd have more exposure to their products. And buyers would benefit because you're lowering the friction to buying because you're able to make decisions faster. You know, that's really tricky, though, because if I remember correctly, eBay gets paid for every listing that goes up. So in a sense, it's an economic incentive for eBay to allow all that listing spam. But it's also an economic disincentive if sales can't be completed. That's a tough place to be. Yes, and it's easy to model. It's also when you have high volume sellers. Things get a little trickier, but for the low-volume sellers, you've seen that eBay now commonly runs specials where, you know, your first 100 listings a month are free, for example. You don't have to pay an insertion fee. And part of that was based on modeling that we did. The numbers were so compelling that we went to the business with it, but they went to the business and the business said, yes, we want to make this happen. And they made an announcement to the selling community that this was going to be a new, basically, you can't spam. If you've got one item that you have 10 of those items, then say you have 10 of them instead of listing one 10 times. And, and some people weren't really happy about it. However, there was an increase in sales through the marketplace. And so everyone benefited. So that was done based on a model of what the transactions would look like, what the marketplace would look like based on behavior that we were seeing. Nice. And, uh, nice. and it worked. Yeah. Another one of the research teams kind of scratched their heads and said, we're seeing, well, I guess the question ended up being, if you type in eBay into your favorite search engine, you'll see a paid listing for eBay at the top and then an organic listing right under it. And so the question was, why pay for that when we get it for free, basically? It's mm. still a search the first, first listing because who else is going to list eBay, you know? And so we modeled it again and said what the impact would be. And the business, it was a much tougher sell to the business. Multiple really? rounds. Yeah, I mean, go back and check again, you know, because if there's going to be any kind of drop in revenue, then someone's head's going to roll. I mean, these things matter, right? Especially yeah. at scale. And so after a lot of tweaking, a lot of internal discussion, a lot of the model validation, they agreed, why don't we roll out a test for a small amount of time in a small geographic market and see if, in fact, what the data tells us is actually true. And it turns out that it was. And so they were able to get a, a very definitive ROI calculation because of how much they were able to not spend on, nice. on paid search advertising. 
cost optimization is a clear win. I mean, it's all fun and games until somebody pokes you in the eye. <laughs> it's not always cut and dried. At Yahoo, the data team spent months with the finance team at the direction of the CFO to try to come up with a model for ROI of the Yahoo data program. You mean and like uh, end, what was the data program worth to the company? Yeah. The CFO is probably like, every time I turn around, you're adding more people to your organization. Am oh, I getting value people. from this? Yeah. And or more machines, you know, whatever. We could be acquiring companies for that. We could be funding other parts of the business. You know, what's the ROI of this effort? And so we spent a long time really trying to wrestle out to the ground. And we found out a couple of things. One is it's a pretty quickly moving target because new technologies and capabilities kept becoming available to the business. It's like, well, how do you factor that in with the existing ROI models that you're trying to build? And the second was the bigger one, which is this huge problem of attribution. Oh, yeah. And attribution is a problem everywhere because it's not a technology problem. It's not an analytics problem. It's a political problem. Um, <laughs> and That's a great quote. Attribution is a political problem. So when I came into Yahoo, I was responsible for building the experimentation platform. The front page used it for every change that they made. So suppose they went to the CFO and they said, we were responsible for 4% lift in conversions, uh, you know, whatever conversion meant for the front mm-hmm. page. Okay, great. Well, what part of that 4% is attributed to me? How much can I take credit for that, the experimentation platform? They would not have been able to roll that stuff out if they hadn't tested it. What about the underlying data systems that the experimentation platform used? How much do you attribute to that? This is the issue with determining ROI of a platform, right? This is always an issue because the platform itself can make things faster, can add new capabilities, can lower operational cost or whatever, but somebody has to utilize those platforms. In the end, we ended up disbanding the effort and say, we know that the ROI is positive, keep on going. This concludes the first part of my interview with Silicon Valley big data technology legend, Bob Page. In the second part, we'll cover how to apply this wisdom. Join us for part two. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.